I remember when I was a, a child, well, probably 60 years ago or so, and we uh, visited my grandparents in the big city of Brookfield, Missouri. And uh, it was always in summer when we visited them. It was always in July, and it was always miserably hot. If you ever been in Missouri back there, you know, it's humid, and it's hot, and it's just miserable. And, and every Sunday we would pack up and go to the First Baptist Church for, for church service. And uh, they, they handed out fans to everybody who came. Uh, did anybody remember going to church and giving out fans? You know what really struck me about that? The fans had printed on them the name of the local mortuary. Okay. And they were donated to the church by the funeral home. And uh, so I'm thinking, there's something wrong here with this. Yeah. Well, this is the last message in this series that we are doing on understanding the Bible. And since this is the last, I want to review a little bit because I know some of you have been on vacation and some of you have been sick. And so I just real quickly want to go over what we've looked at. The first sermon was on the inspiration of Scripture. And because the Bible is the inspired Word of God, we have absolutes that we can hang on to. We have direction that we can follow without ever having to be afraid of going uh, wrong in any way. And everything else hinges upon the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. And then the second sermon had to do with understanding the Word of God. Uh, we looked at three things. If I could just remind you real quickly. To understand the Bible, number one, we need to look at the context. Keep that in the back of your mind because that's going to uh, come up the rest of, uh, of the points. We use the normal meaning of words. Uh, we, we saw that interpretation comes before application. So to understand the Word of God, there's some principles, some truths that we need. Otherwise, we just go crazy and make the Bible say anything we want it to say. The third sermon had to do with understanding the law of Moses. And this is important because the law of Moses is the context for 80% of what we have in the Bible. So we need to understand when it began. We need to understand when it, uh, when it ended. We saw that the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law when it's used properly, according to 1 Timothy 1.8. We saw that the law foreshadowed the work of Christ in Hebrews 10.1. And we saw that the law of Moses was nailed to the cross. It was crucified with Christ on the cross, Colossians 2, 14 through 16. And we started to make some comparisons between law and grace. For instance, the Mosaic law focused on outward behavior, whereas grace focuses on inward change that results in outward behavior. But we saw that the law of Moses could not give people the yearning to obey God, Whereas grace gives us the desire to live for God. 
We saw the law of Moses told people what they couldn't do, whereas grace gives people the inner power to do what God wants them to do. We saw the law of Moses had no divine dynamic to it, whereas grace empowers us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so that's a major context that we have to understand when we are reading our, our Bible. Is this law or, or is this grace? The, the next two sermons had to do with the king and the kingdom. And it had to do with a kingdom that was promised the nation Israel. We saw it was a literal kingdom promised to a literal Israel that will literally be fulfilled someday. Through the Abrahamic covenant and the Palestinian covenant and the Davidic covenant, God made certain promises to Israel. And through numerous prophecies, God laid out exactly what the kingdom would look like. Peace, health, justice, rejoicing, a holy theocracy, just a few of the literal conditions that will characterize the kingdom on earth. And then the second message, we looked at the gospel account, and we looked at how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. We saw the signs and the miracles and the wonders that he performed to fulfill what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do when he came. There was just one problem, though, we saw, and that was Jesus didn't fulfill one of the requirements, and that was he did not overthrow the Roman Empire. And for that, the Jews became confused, and they shouted, crucify him, and he went to the cross. Then, having gone to the cross, Jesus <laughs> informed his disciples, oh, yeah, there's one thing he called the, the, the mystery of the kingdom. He says, and that is this, the kingdom couldn't come without the cross. Christ had to suffer first before the glory could follow. And so that brought us to what we looked at last week, understanding the book of Acts, and we just got through the, the first part of the book of Acts. And what we saw was what the, the disciples preached was just an extension of what Jesus had taught. Not only did they preach to the, to the Jews that Jesus was their Messiah, but they also had to do the same miracles as a fulfillment of the prophecy. But just as the Jews had rejected Jesus, they rejected the ministry of the 12 apostles. And we're introduced to a new person, Saul of Tarsus, later to become the Apostle Paul. All right, all of that was background. All that caught you up. Now you remember all of that. Now we can go on to something new. And today I want to look at understanding the epistles. For, for two sermons, I told you that I was going to tell you what happened to that Jewish kingdom. Why didn't it come? So I want to begin by keeping that promise to you and telling you why it didn't come, what happened to the messianic kingdom. We have to ask ourselves some questions. Number one, did God change his mind? 
Did God say, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not, I know I promised that to Israel, but no, nah, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I don't think God can do that. Can he say to Israel, oh, I didn't literally mean you, I meant somebody else. Now, I have to tell you, there are people today who believe that. There are people who believe that what God promised to the nation Israel, he has taken away from them and, and given to someone else. Uh, this has become the theological heart of anti-Semitism. Um, I don't know how much you know about history. and Martin Luther, the great reformer, okay, believed that if the Jews just understood that Jesus was their Messiah, that they would in mass just embrace Jesus and get saved. And so in his early ministry, he, he went to the, Martin Luther preached to the Jews and says, Jesus is your Messiah. And, and he expected the Jews just to flock to him. Much to his chagrin, Martin Luther found out that they didn't. And as a result, Martin Luther became very anti-Semitic. And that theology became dominant in Germany. And it was that theology that influenced Adolf Hitler. And we all know what happened in the world in World War II. It had its seed, it had its root in the idea that, that the promises given to Israel are now given to, to the church and, and, and we are God's chosen uh, seed and, 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 and the Jews are to be oppressed because they're responsible for killing Jesus. I, I encourage you to read history if you want to know more about that. It's quite, I find it fascinating. You probably find it boring, um, but I like it. Another belief that is out there today is that God never meant for any of these promises to be taken literal. Therefore, it's up to us to just figure out, you know, what did he mean there? Well, I reject both of those ideas based upon passage of Scripture. Let's take our Bibles. Let's go to Romans. It's really Romans 9, 10, and 11, but we don't have time to go through all of those. So let, let's go to Romans chapter 11, verse 11. Romans 11, 11 says, did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. There, there's two Two little Greek words here uh, that are used. One is the, for the word stumble, and one is for the word fall. The, the word for stumble here means to trip. Just, uh, you know, you, you stub your toe and you just kind of stumble a little bit. The word for fall in the, in the Greek is a word that means to fall down so that you cannot get up. Okay, you all remember that commercial, don't you? I've fallen and I can't get up. Did God's people, did Israel trip and fall down beyond being able to ever get up again? No, he says. In Romans eleven twenty five, 25, he says, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourself. Some of the people of Israel have 
hard hearts. But this will last only until the full number of Gentiles come to Christ. Someday, Israel is going to get their kingdom, the one God promised to them. And they're going to get it in the fullness of everything that God said they would have. Right now, they have just tripped a little, okay? But they will rise up again, and they shall be all that God has called them to be. But right now, God is doing something different, okay? But we, we call it the church. Now, my next series that we're going to do is uh, titled Understanding the Church. We need to understand the church. We need to understand the purpose of the church. We, we need to understand the calling of the church. We need to understand what it looks like, what it's supposed to be doing. Um, there's a lot of different ways that churches can stumble and get off track. And as I've had the opportunity to travel through the country, especially the last couple of years, and uh, do interim preaching at churches, I, uh, the churches I go into, uh, I, can, I can see, oh, okay, this church got sidetracked back here. And now they're off on that tangent. And oh, that, this church, this is what they got sidetracked on. We need to know the church and its purpose and, and what it is God has called the church to be and the church to do. The context of most of the Old Testament is the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom. The, the context of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the four Gospels, is that Jesus is that Messiah. The context of the first part of Acts is that if Israel will repent of killing their Messiah, then Jesus will return to earth and set up to the kingdom. And now today we get to understanding the epistles and we find out the context of the epistles is the church. So what, is, what do the epistles say about the church? Let's go over to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to see that the church is quite a unique entity, something completely different from what uh, God had Israel to be. In Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship amongst the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. As we read through particularly the, the book of Ephesians, we have these truths, these little sayings about the church. And, and I mean, almost every phrase could be a sermon here. Let me just pick out a few of the things. Talking about the Gentiles. It says, we used to be outsiders. Okay? We used to be outside the promises of God. 
We used to be considered by the Jews to be unholy. We were excluded from citizenship amongst the people of Israel. We were living apart from Christ. We lived without God and without hope. You know, that, that little phrase, without hope, is a strong phrase, okay? Do you know why people commit suicide? It's because they run out of hope. You know why people get divorces quite often? They run out of hope. Without hope. One of the uh, POWs from the Vietnam War came home, and uh, he was asked, he had been a POW for many, many years, and, and he was asked, what enabled you to survive so long as a POW where others didn't survive? And his answer was this, those who died early died because they lost hope. Okay. We need hope in order to continue on. Well, it says the Gentiles were without hope. We had no hope. We had no way apart from Israel to come to God. But then at the end of verse 13, Paul writes this, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Where was the blood of Christ shed? On the cross, right? Where in the Bible do we read about that? Well, that's towards the end of the Gospels, right? The last couple chapters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about the cross. Okay, we're brought near to him through the blood of Christ. And and the, the great thing here is what he's saying is no longer do the Gentiles have to wait for Israel to receive her Messiah in order for the Gentiles to get blessed. We can come and get blessed apart from believing Israel, apart from Israel's receiving her Messiah. Someone asked me, well, you know, why don't we see more of this in the Bible? Why why don't we see more of of God's special dealing with the church? It just kind of seems to crop up right there in the middle of Acts. Well, why don't we read about it in, in the Old Testament? Well, over in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, it says, In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Earlier this year, I I preached a message, and uh, we saw Jesus using this phrase, the mystery of the kingdom. And we looked at that word mystery, and what does that word mystery mean? And, And basically, it means something kept secret. Something once hidden from view, but is now revealed. And, and <coughs> excuse me, Paul says that you know the church was something that was kept secret, something once hidden, it, it, hidden by God. Now it's revealed by God. It's in the epistles that that we learn about the the identity of of the believer today. Here are some things. That, that we only find out 
about ourselves in the epistles. One, we are chosen by God to become a part of his church. We are adopted children of God. We are accepted by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. We are the temple of God on earth. We are seated in the heavenlies. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit, which assures us of eternal life. We are members of the body of Christ. We are endowed with spiritual gifts. And and that's just a partial list. There's so many things about the church that, that is revealed in the epistles. In the epistles, we learn about our identity in Christ, and then we learn about how that works out in our daily lives. When, when I was in Bible college, we had to outline every book of the Bible. <sighs> you know, every book of the Bible we had to have an outline for. Well, I loved Ephesians, and I loved Colossians, because there's a two-point outline. Okay? Ephesians 1 through 3, our identity in Christ. Ephesians 4 through 6, living out our identity in Christ. Okay, very simple. Colossians 1 and 2, our our identity in Christ. Colossians 3, 4, living out our identity in Christ. You can see why I liked it, okay? Each epistle has a, a section on who we are. You might call that the so what of the gospel, or, or the why of the gospel. I remember Fred preached a sermon a year or so ago, and he was talking about the epistles, and he, he mentioned that in the gospels we, we get the what, and then, then, and then he was sharing over in the epistles the, the why and the how and, and all the explanation of it there. I like that. Each epistle also has a context of his own. You do realize that the epistles are basically letters, right? And they are letters written by Paul, Peter, John, so on, okay? And they're written to a specific church at a specific place. And each one of those churches had specific issues that the writer addresses within those letters. For instance, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. The book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians were written to the believers in a church in a city called Corinth. Hence, we call it Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Now, they had some very specific issues in that church. Number one, drinking too much communion wine and getting drunk. Okay, uh, I don't know if you understand that. Uh, communion today is not what communion was back in Bible times. I mean, next week we're going to have communion, and you're going to get a little cup, and you're going to get a little wafer, and, and, and we're going to call it communion, and, and, and it is, because it doesn't matter how much or that. But communion back then was a meal, okay? It was a potluck. Uh, and uh, unfortunately... There were those who would arrive early, according to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, so they could get a head start on the communion wine. 
And uh, that was a problem. So Paul addresses that. You need to know that context when you go to the book of 1 Corinthians. Another problem is that believers were taking other believers to court over church issues. That was a problem. Paul had to address that. There was another issue in the Corinthian church, and not just in the Corinthian church, because we read it in some of the other epistles as well, where people were arguing over a theological point. And the theological point was this. Can a Christian go to a heathen temple and buy meat there that had been offered as a sacrifice to a, a heathen god, you know, Jupiter or Zeus or Paphrodites or what, you know, whatever, okay? Or because in doing so, you're supporting that temple. You're paying for that meat, okay? Or on the other hand, is it perfectly okay to do that? Well, this erupted into this huge fight, this huge argument within the church. And so Paul has to address that. Another one, and, and it, this is kind of inferred, you know, it doesn't exactly say it, but fist fights in the foyer after church. Okay? That's what it was coming down to, basically. It was coming down to, to Christians arguing and fighting and bickering. And, you know, I've pastored a few churches in my life, and I'm so glad the church at Corinth wasn't one of them. When we read every epistle, we have to not only stand the context of the church that it's talking about, but we have to understand the, the culture of, of the people it was written to. There, there's a theological context. There's a cultural context. There's a social economic context. Several of the epistles were written to combat a heresy called Gnosticism. Uh, technically, it's kind of a pre-Gnosticism. Let me just tell you a little bit about Gnosticism. The Gnostic doctrine taught that the world was created and ruled by a lesser divinity, and that divinity was Christ. So what they're saying right up front is that, that Christ was not the head God. He was just kind of a, a, a lesser God there. Only through special knowledge, Greek word gnosis, since we get the word Gnostic, was through that was one enabled to understand God. Gnosticism is the belief that human beings contain a piece of God, a divine spark within us, which has fallen from the immaterial world into the bodies of humans. They believe all physical matter is subject to decay, rotting, and death. Well, the result of that theology was this. They said, spirit is good. That divine spark within us, that's good. The body is evil, though. The body is bad. And as a result, Gnosticism split in two, two directions. One of the directions was said, the body is evil. We must flog it. We must abuse it. You know, we, we can't feed it good food. We got to you know, feed it gruel and, you know, abuse your body because the body is evil. We must punish this evil body that we live in. 
The other direction it went was, well, the body's evil, so what? You know, we'll just, you know, there's nothing we can do to make it better, so let's just sin all we want, okay? And it went that way where they said, prostitution, well, fine, the body's evil anyway, you know. It's only the spirit that's good, uh, you know, abusing uh, the body in in a different way, not from denying it, but through gratifying it in everything. Well, as you read through the last part of the book of Acts, we get the understanding uh, the, or the context for the, for the understanding of Scripture. In my 40 years of preaching ministry, I have spent a lot of time preaching from the epistles, a lot of time. And the reason for that is that the church is different, different from the Messianic kingdom. The King James Bible that I grew up on and memorized, and when I, when I go to my modern-day concordances, I still have to look it up in the King James Version first so I can get the right words to put down so it'll find it for me, and then I can get it into a different translation. But the King James Bible uses these two words, in Christ. 75 times, all in the epistles, all that we are, all that God has for us in Christ. We can find that in the epistles. None of these truths were were given to Israel. They've been given to the church. We share some of the blessings of the new covenant, But the fullness of the new covenant isn't going to happen until the Messiah comes and sits on the throne of the kingdom. So if you want to know who you are in Christ, if you want to know what promises God has for the church and and what he desires of you as a member of the church, then let me encourage you to add the epistles to your reading, okay? Get into them. Find those things that God has just special for us as church. And now, as we go into our next series in a couple weeks, as we look at the church, we're going to see that God has some very unique and special things for us to be doing as the church. And I think it's going to be exciting. And I I hope you'll keep coming. And uh, thank you for keep coming, by the way. Uh, I appreciate that. Let's pray. Father, as we've been looking at context in Scripture, uh, looking at the context of the Mosaic Law, looking at the context of, of the Messianic Kingdom, uh, looking at the context of, of uh, the church and the epistles, Lord, uh, There is so much in your word for us, so many truths. And Father, um, I know that it's hard for some to to put it all together. And maybe not everybody is supposed to put it all together, Lord. But Father, we thank you that that we have your word. And that, Father, the, the simplest truth, can be believed, but yet we can go years and years and never plumb the depths of your word. So, Father, thank you. 
Thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us from your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that uses the Holy Word of God to produce the Holy Child of God. Thank you. We have a precious book, Lord, your word. And we thank you for your faithfulness that not one promise will go unfulfilled. For you are a great God, the great God. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.